Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. Caleb coming to you with a really cool offer from my dear friend Chris Gilmore from Chris Outdoors. When you first get started exploring the outdoors, whether it be through hunting, camping, or survival skills, it can all get a little bit mm, daunting and maybe even overwhelming in regards to how much there is to learn. Having a solid foundation in tracking and naturalist skills can help open the door to bushcraft and make you learn much faster. It can also just make things outdoors that much for, uh, that much more fun and exciting. What bird made that call? What animal does that track belong to? What do those clouds mean in regards to the incoming weather? Nature awareness is a skill set that is transferable to all aspects of bushcraft and beyond. Whether you are a hunter, a trapper, an angler, a survivalist, a paddler, or a hiker, this skill set can help make you safer and make your experiences that much more enjoyable. Chris has taught literally thousands of people how to read sign, whether it be through tracks, bird language, or the environment itself. And with his new online learning course, Reading Nature's Language, he can help you take your skills to the next level. Even though it is based online, you will have access to tons of practical activities and challenges that will make you the woodland Jedi you always wanted to be. Check out the trailer and more details at www.learnnatureslanguage.com. And just to sweeten the deal for you, enter the promo code DRAGONFLY to get 25% off the course. Again, that is www.learnnatureslanguage.com with the promo code DRAGONFLY for 25% off. To know the landscape is to open up a door. Than you've ever felt before. We know that you will love this podcast. So shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft. Hello, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave. And I am joined today with my co host, Rye the Adventure Guy. Bonjour. As well as our tech girl and professional white girl, Nikki Satira. Hey. And we brought Nikki in because we're doing another special on case studies of survival stories. And Nikki has some great insights on those. She brings up some really cool points. And I want to have her in here for this as well. Ryan and I have spent the last two weeks researching these stories for ourselves to tell. And originally we were thinking like making the other guy tell, try to make it creative, but we realized we actually have all the information. We have all the insight on these situations. So we're just going to read them straight. I'm going to go first and then Rai is going to dive into his. These are some strange stories. I can tell you that. I haven't heard Rai's. I've heard kind of like the general synopsis of it, but not in detail. I don't want to give too much away, but I can tell you that this one that I've got is pretty weird. And the one that Rai is going to be reading and uh, telling you is going to be pretty strange as well. So hopefully you enjoy this. So here yeah, we go. We've, we've done some high profile stories so far, but I wanted to do some of the smaller personal stories that people may not have already heard of. So exactly. We've done like Shackleton. We've done uh, the Franklin expedition. We've done the, uh, we've done the alert plane crash. We've done all these, as you said, high profile. And now these are like, you. we had to really look for these stories. We're looking for some more really like lesser known stories that may have only been known by a couple of search and rescue technicians that we knew or a couple of hunters that we knew, things like that. And we came across some pretty, I think these are some pretty interesting ones myself, but uh, let's dive into the first one. This one is the case, survival case study of Frankie Creedmore. So 
As many folks who have, who have studied survival scenarios know, the highest number of missing persons in the outdoors belong to the hunting community. Some statistics claim as high as 70% of all search and rescue operations are for lost or stranded hikers. And if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. Hikers usually stick to designated trails. Canoe trippers are either on the water or on the portage. Anglers don't really have any reason to look for trout in the forests so much as on the streams or lakeshores. But hunters are often only out for a couple of days or maybe a couple of weeks in the, in the woods per year, meaning they don't get a lot of time to practice their trail craft and their skills. Uh, they often have to travel on foot into deep woods for their game, and they're potentially not very well versed on the terrain they're covering. Sometimes you just drive to a location and you think this is good hunting habitat and you go out there and you don't really know the landscape. And then when you add something like camouflage, you can really see where things can go wrong. And that was the case for Frankie Creedmoor. In 1983, Frankie, uh, Frankie was a 26-year-old from Shagabaga, Ontario, who decided to go on a white-tailed deer hunt with his friends. Frankie was a physically fit former member of the Canadian Forces, who for all intents and purposes was not the kind of guy you would expect to get lost in the woods. His friends were Oliver, also known as Ollie Weatherman, John Gomos, and Henry Winchester. They all piled into John's Ford Bronco and drove northeast of Shagabaga, approximately three and a half hours until they were deep in Crown Land, about 50 kilometers from Wahlberg, Ontario. They had found an old logging road on the maps and had been following it for about 20 kilometers before Henry spotted a two-track trail that looked like it led to a lake from where they could camp. About three kilometers down the trail, they hit a washout caused by a beaver dam. John tried to cross the washout and succeeded, though they all heard a loud bang and felt a jolt in the Bronco when John struck a rock. After a quick inspection, nothing seemed wrong and they continued. Upon arrival... They unloaded their gear and began setting up camp. It was late afternoon and they focused on getting firewood and preparing for dinner, planning to scout for deer in the morning. As the evening began, Frankie and Henry both tried their hands at fishing, but ended up getting their lines tangled with another person's fishing rod, which they found abandoned on the shore further down the lake. After tussling with their rods, losing a good lure and arguing who got, about who got stuck on who, everybody settled in for the night. Early the next morning before sunrise, the party split in half. Henry and John went down the southern shoreline while Ollie and Frankie went north, cutting away from the lake towards a distant ridge they could see. Upon reaching the bottom of the ridge, Ollie and Frankie spotted dark clouds forming on the western horizon. According to accounts, this is when Fra Ollie and Frankie had a debate of what to do. Frankie had spotted really fresh deer droppings, but Ollie warned it's going to rain. Their equipment included one rifle each. Each had a pack with basic tools you would expect of a hunter, and they were dressed in mostly army surplus cotton fatigues, though Frankie was wise enough to wear a wool sweater, and long johns beneath his. After arguing about what to do, they decided to carry on with the hunt under the guise that if the weather turned sour, they would give up the, daily's hunt, the day's hunt. A few hours later, they had ascended the ridge following the deer's tracks. Ollie spotted the buck down below about 400 meters away, and Frankie began to put a stock on the deer. At about 300 meters, Frankie was confident with his range, and so he took the shot. The bullet connected, but high and further back, somewhere in the guts, according to Ollie. The injured deer charged off to the woods and Frankie took up the pursuit. Ollie lost sight of both the deer and Frankie within the next few minutes. He waited, not wanting to spook the already injured deer and ruining Frankie's chances of catching him. After about an hour, Ollie, nervous that he had, hadn't seen, a, uh, seen a, a return of Frankie or a second shot, began to call out for his hunting partner. As Frankie pursued his wounded quarry, he stopped paying attention to direction and land features and eventually got himself turned around. He lost the trail of the deer at around, and around 11 a.m. it had begun to rain. As he tried to retrace his steps, the rain poured harder, and he quickly realized his tracks had washed out. 
Frankie a small uh, Frankie had a small six foot by six foot tarp in his bag. Uh, and so he set up a simple lean to trying to wait out the storm. As the rain got harder, though, Ollie had been looking for Frankie, but it had to give up the search as he was beginning to feel the soaking chill setting into his clothes. An hour and a half later, on the edge of hypothermia, Ollie stumbled into camp, telling Henry and John what had happened. They decided to also wait out the storm, with Henry setting up a sheltered spot by the fire for Ollie to warm up and dry off, while John made hot beverages. Ollie, who was considered the joker of the group, tried to make light of his own situation by teasing John for giving him just a cup of hot water, apparently saying something along the lines of, you forgot the Swiss, miss. Frankie's situation was getting worse. Though he had a roof, it was leaking like a sieve due to the tarp being beaten and worn in his hunting bag. His matches were wet, and though he, had, he was a smoker, he had left his lighter behind by accident. He huddled in his, quote, shelter and, quiver, and shivered, trying to stay warm and, and as dry as possible, with no signs of the storm letting up as thunder rolled off in the distance. A bolt of lightning lit up the darkened sky, and in amongst the trees, Frankie spotted the buck he had injured. It was staring through the brush right at him, and though he was armed, he never raised his rifle, later describing the situation as eerie. I've like I've been out hunting before and I've seen like animals looking at you and sometimes it can be kind of messed up. It can be kind of weird. I don't think I would, I would ever describe it as being like flat out eerie or creepy or anything, but maybe like it depends on like like think of like a horror movie. You're sitting in the in the lightning crash and suddenly there's someone staring at you through the brush. Yeah, I could, I could see that as being spooky. And their eyes glow in the dark. That's true. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. That is very true. And like. A lot of people have, uh, have commented on this whole case study from my research of like, why didn't you just take the shot? Well, something freaks you out. You're not, and you're already like wet, you're cold. He's probably borderline hypothermic at this point. Mm-hmm. He's not really in the frame of mind to grab his gun and shoot a deer when all this stuff's going on. You kind of forget things. There's, there's plenty of stories of people who are in like war zones and they have a rifle in their hand and the bomb goes off and they just drop the gun. It's probably it's, exhausted too. That's honestly a fair a fair assessment too so anyways let's get back to this where was i by uh yeah by the next lightning bolt he could no longer see the deer this left him uneasy and he began to check to make sure his rifle was loaded eventually the rain lifted and he was able to dry off a little bit in the afternoon early afternoon sun assuming everyone was all right he shook his tarp dry packed his kit and returned to trying to find his way out while also still trying to hunt the deer here and there he would come across the buck's tracks in the mud crossing and recrossing the game trails Frankie, Frankie believed he had maybe rediscovered his old trail, but after a few hundred meters decided against that path as nothing looked familiar. Upon spotting more tracks from the wounded de- uh, buck, he is quoted as saying aloud to himself, you see these tracks indicate this animal is even more lost than we are. As the sun continued to roll <laughs> down uh, towards the horizon. Yeah. Interesting little like uh, almost like gallows humor there. Uh. But uh As the sun continued to roll towards the horizon, Frankie's situation was getting more dire. The temperature had dropped back down, and now he was uh, most assuredly lost. He began to panic, running up any incline he saw, hoping it was the ridge between him and the lake that the others were camped on. Back with the group, the fellas had tried uh, tried searching and calling for him for many hours. As night began to set in, they made the decision to return to camp and make a game plan for the morning. Frankie resorted to finding a big shaggy spruce tree to sleep under, using his soggy tarp as a blanket while the spruce stuff <laughs> below the tree acted as an impromptu bed. At one point in the night, he woke up shivering hard, his hands barely able to make fists from the cold. Frankie did some squats, remembering how, he kept, uh, how they kept him warm when doing cold weather training in his soldier days. When the shivering subsided, he tried to get some sleep again, but was woken again by what he believed was the sound of a deer's snort. 
He sat against the spruce's trunk for most of the rest of the night, feeling uneasy. Before dawn, John tried to start his Bronco to go for help, but apparently while crossing the washout two days prior, he had hit that rock and torn a large part of his SUV's altimeter out, essentially making it impossible to start the Bronco back up. The group decided to send John out to the logging road in the hopes of flagging down another group of hunters while Henry and Ollie would try to pick up Frankie's trail. At dawn, Frankie was practically feral. Fear, exhaustion, dehydration, and cold had all done a number on his psyche, and though he was coherent still, he was also extremely paranoid. Feeling as if the force was against him, he was lashing out, screaming, and trying anything he could to be found. It's important to note that although he had 12 rounds of ammunition at his disposal, he never considered firing his rifle to signal any potential rescuers. What is really interesting, though, is his realization that his firearm was a tool for survival nonetheless. He unloaded one round, and using the muzzle of the gun, he pried the bullet out of its casing. He then stuffed a piece of his collar into the casing and fired it, uh, this upwards. As it drifted back to the earth, he could see that the wadded cotton was smoldering. With some spruce stuff from his shelter uh, from his shelter tree and very fine twigs, he was able to ignite a very small fire. And finally, for the first time in over 18 hours, he felt warm. With the fire came both the physical and psychological benefits of it. He warmed his body, dried his clothing, and felt hope for the first time in nearly a day. The muffled gunshot, though, was not enough to be alerted uh, to alert Henry or Ollie, who had been calling his name and even blowing a whistle. They had found only about a half a dozen of Frankie's erratic tracks in the morning, eventually coming to the conclusion that he was totally lost. Ironically, at this point, the guys were all less than 500 meters from one another. They just could not hear one another, and the wind was blowing Frankie's smoke away from the search team. So they couldn't even smell his smoke. They were less than a kilometer away from each other, and they couldn't even smell his smoke because the wind was just not in their favor. Like that poor guy, poor, like everything. Like poor these guy. guys, Ollie's Ollie abandoned his buddy out there to go home. He probably has a lot of guilt on him right at that, at that point. Uh, I think actually just in a moment, I mentioned about how Henry wasn't feeling good about it either due to the argument prior before uh, the evening before. Uh, where was I? Uh, as the day wore on, Frankie gathered firewood and forged for some simple foods. He ate and felt warm, but kept feeling like someone was just near him. And so he would often abandon his work and take off running looking for his rescue. About midday, he did this one last time, and his panic abandoned his gear and was not able to recover the trail back to his camp. What he did come across, though, was that injured deer. According to the account, uh, his account, Frankie ran over a small hill, and on the other side was the buck nursing his wound. The deer jumped up, reared back, and, and before apparently kicking Frankie so hard in, the, in his chest that he was knocked back down the hill cracking his kneecap off of a rock before landing face first in the mud. Now, I personally can't even imagine the pain he must have been in at this point. And although a lot of people have criticized Frankie's actions after this, all I've got to say about it is, have you ever been roundhouse kicked by Buck Norris? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> well, then let's stop throwing stones in our glass houses, folks. Yeah. Frankie's yeah. having a hard time and clearly he's had a rough go with his deer. Ollie and Henry at this point had not found much beyond the few tracks and with no responses to their calls and whistle blasts, they were losing hope for ever finding their friend. Henry was apparently really beside himself, feeling guilt for the argument over the tangled fishing lines, making him lament things like, how could I have done this to him? Why am I such an asshole? And even like random ones like whose line was it anyways? To Ollie in regards what? to the abandoned fishing rod, uh, in regards to the fishing rod, how they got tangled up, like they were arguing with each other, but it was somebody else's oh. fishing line that got tangled and who just leaves a fishing rod out here, I guess is what he was trying to get at. Mm. They eventually gave up on the search, fearing getting uh, themselves lost out there as well. 
John had by this point hiked out to the logging road. And though he couldn't find any other hunters, he actually was able to flag down a logging truck on its way back to Wahlberg. The truck driver called them in the missing hunter report to the Ontario Provincial Police, who began to organize a search party by that afternoon. Now, Frankie's mental health was taking a steep dive, and he was painfully aware that without his gear and fire, he wouldn't likely survive another night. More so, since the altercation with the wounded deer, his kneecap had swelled right up from landing on that rock, nearly hobbling him completely. All the while, the deer was not leaving him alone. Frequently making bluff charges on two more occasions, racing in to strike and assault Frankie with his hooves. So let's take a moment to take in this situation. We have a man who's been lost for, at this point, 24 hours or more. He's injured without any equipment of any kind, shy of maybe a belt knife. And he has a psychotic deer with a personal vendetta stalking him through this forest. Frankie's situation is not a good one. And honestly, this is feeling like a bad horror movie of a story. Picture that, like you wound this animal and you keep going through the woods trying to find it. Now you're just trying to get out of there and now it's following you around and it's taken like, it's, it's concluded like you're the, you're my problem. You're why I'm like this, you're why I'm in pain and it's taking its anger out on him. Like that's. I've definitely heard stories like that. Like I've heard of animals like seeking revenge, like tigers and stuff, but I've never heard of it with a deer. Yeah. It's, it's a weird one. Like I told you, this is a weird story. So anyways, uh, as Ollie and Henry arrived back at the camp defeated, John arrived with the cavalry, 16 OPP officers, three professionally trained search and rescue technicians with a canine unit, and 10 volunteers from neighboring hunt camps. In camp, they poured over the map of the area and Ollie and Henry, uh, Henry's information of what they did find, helping to paint the picture for the search party. Frankie had been harassed by the deer for well over two hours at this point, and when, and when there was a quick break in the onslaught, he grabbed a tall stick and sharpened it into a makeshift spear to try and defend himself. His game plan was to fight the deer head on, but he was worried a about the hooves plan. and antlers. A game plan, yeah. <laughs> no pun intended, I guess. With a uh, stick. With a stick, with a pointy <laughs> stick. With a pointy <laughs> stick. You, like, yeah, you got to think about this poor guy. He's in a real like life or death situation here in his eyes. This deer is hounding him. He's getting pestered again and again. It's kicking him. It's, 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 it's stomping on him. He's got, he's got nothing but a little pocket knife or belt knife on him. I, I, in my research, I couldn't tell whether it was a pocket knife or a belt knife that he had, but he, he used it to fashion himself a spear out of that pointy stick. And that's when things get kind of a little bit weirder. His game plan was to fight the deer head on, but he was worried about the hooves and antlers. And so without a shield of any kind, he resorted to taking his torn hunting pants and long johns and wrapping his left forearm and neck with them to act as makeshift armor. Moments after preparing for battle, the deer returned with vengeance in his eyes. As the battle began, Frankie heard a holler and looked up to see many men looking down at him in disbelief. Now, Officer John Woodcock was one of the first witnesses on the scene, and it was his account of the situation that stands out most to me. Here he was on the top of a ledge looking down at a half-naked man, covered in mud and bruises, clutching a pointed stick, screaming incoherently about a killer deer. With makeshift armor made yeah, of his clothing. Like, exactly. This is like... <laughs> Such a bizarre thing to come upon when you're coming in as a search and rescue technician. As the searchers tried to get to him, he continued to flail his makeshift spear, uh, standing pantless in knee-deep mud, lashing out at everything and everyone that was near. It took 15 minutes and six men to subdue him enough to get the spear away, while the others searched in vain for the wounded and enraged deer. Upon arrival at the Wahlberg Hospital, Frankie was admitted for contusions, abrasions, mild hypothermia, and and had to be actually strapped to the gurney as he was manic and clearly having a mental breakdown, which made him a risk to himself and attending doctors and nurses. 
blood toxicology finally told the truth of the whole situation. Frankie earlier in the day had been foraging and consumed wild mushrooms. No. Yeah. That, really? Not, that, I was going to say. <laughs> though not deadly, were toxic enough to turn his paranoia into full-blown delusions. There was no deer stalking him. He was high of as course. a kite and went full Don Quixote with the image, uh, imaginary deer <laughs> being his windows. So the lessons from this tale are as follows. Take proper survival training and learn loss-proofing methods and techniques and always get a 100% identification of any wild food before you consume it that is the end of the case study of frankie creedmore near the end when you were talking about the putting him on him putting on armor and sharpening a stick <laughs> i was like he ate something <laughs> <laughs> i'm as i was reading and researching all this stuff i was imagining like the scene from predator with arnold schwarzenegger <laughs> like putting on the mud getting all the weapons ready and just like bellowing into the wilderness, holding a torch. And I was like, how is Frankie is... now? Frankie's doing well. He's got three kids and two ex-wives. From okay. what I've read. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's doing well. I think he went back into uh, the military for a short while and then came back out into computer engineering is what I saw last on like any, I did like a little quick, like LinkedIn search on him. Cause the guy would be like, mm -hmm. it was 82 and he was 26 at the time. So he's in his 50s, 60s, probably a little bit younger than my father. And uh, I couldn't find much on it, but it seems like he's doing well. That's good. No more uh, eating random mushrooms in the forest, I'm guessing. Just hoping, at least. <laughs> All right, Ryan, how are you feeling, brother? How am I feeling? I'm ready to go. I'm ready to tell you some stories. I am excited to hear this one. Well, you're excited, eh? Oh, if you won't, it's kind of a shitty story. So I don't know how excited you're going to be, but... I'm, I'm excited to hear more about this, though. Yeah, this one isn't quite 82, but this is more 97 era. So okay. right at the start of the tech age. Just the end of the grunge era. Yeah, exactly. Kurt Cobain has passed and they're all still mourning. Nobody's so. wearing their butterfly clips in their hair anymore. Yeah. It's Corn's, a sad Corn's sad got an time. album out. <laughs> Truly a sad time. But okay, yeah. So it goes back two and a half decades, 97. The, the two people in this case are Richard Sissel and Alana Campaign. So they had set out, this is actually a second date that they're on. Oh, really? Yeah, they were both from the Toronto area. They had been set up on a date with their friend at a birthday party. So pre-Tinder, of course. Yeah, pre-Tinder, <laughs> back when you had to do everything yourself and you actually had to talk to someone face-to-face -face or over the phone. So yeah, it's a really weird, scary time as well for that. So, But yeah, they'd set out on a second date adventure in the backwoods of Tamagami of all places. That would wow. just not soon be forgotten for all the wrong reasons. And I think we can all relate to that. All these second date backwoods dates that all go bad. It's always a that's a really thing. fast to go that's, on it <laughs> that's moving quick that's moving quick. yeah that's a real testament there there's some go-getters i tell you that's the thing so let's go on with this richard like i just said is an overachieving 22 year old business graduate from toronto he's the city boy he's grown up his whole life in the toronto area he's just your typical street kid but with the go-getting business ideas that you typically have. So he had his eyes exploring the world set on that. So yeah, he did that. And then Alana 
was a 23 year old farm girl from Tilsonburg, from what I've read. She grew up there on a beef farm, dairy farm sort of oh. setup. So she was a tough go-getting girl as well. But she had also studied a recent veterinary graduate at University oh, wow. of Guelph. So she was into her animals. She was a farm girl, but she had once she was in Guelph, she wanted to kind of spread her wings a bit as most country kids do sometimes. They don't always want to go back to their little small town, as as beautiful as Tilsonburg may be. But yeah, she was ready to find some work opportunities and start her career. So they had met at that birthday party, a mutual friend. The friend was in the same hiking club as Rich. So they set him up, did that. They knew they had that kind of idea of backgrounds and everything. So, yeah. But let's see where I am at this story. It's, it's a lot of notes on this one. There wasn't much to go off of, but I may do with a couple journals I found and the few news stories I found. So they didn't start quite off going into the backwoods the first time. They had just a coffee date at your local Timmy's. That's always the best place to have your classy, little... Classy, classy. Classy, just having a nice ice cap and a coffee. But it was 97, <laughs> so I'm not sure if the ice caps were out yet. I remember having them around 2000, but that's besides the point. <laughs> but... So they had the usual nervous small talk, ice breaking, but then also the talk of adventure would be served up with their coffees. So Richard had a keen interest in motivational readings. He had just recently finished reading Nothing Venture, Nothing Win by the great mountaineer and Antarctic explorer, Sir Edmund Hillary, who was the first one to successfully summit Mount Everest. So it's one of those books that kind of just gets into your bones and then you kind of feel that desire to adventure afterwards. So he had got that. He had been into his hiking. So he was, it was on his mind, like many young men, they're very eager to do things. They get really excited about things. So, yeah, let's see. Yeah, he came enamored with the concept of peak bagging which is getting to all the peaks you can get. Some people just mountaineer year after year and try to get as many peaks as they can under their belt. And like I was just saying, like in many impressionable young men, he was eager to bite off more than he could chew. And I'm not talking about Tim Horton's steak sandwich. So yeah, he's biting off way more than he can chew. And then that's where that idea came on. And he had set his eyes on Ishpatina Ridge in Tomogamy the highest peak elevation in Ontario, standing at a modest 693 meters above sea level. Nothing close to your usual mountain peaks, but due to his location in southern Ontario, this was the best option to begin checking off his list. Ishpatina comes from the Ojibwe word, Ishpadina. I'm not sure. Did I get that right, Caleb? Yep, you actually pronounced that pretty good. There we go. Yeah, I'm learning. <laughs> but it means high place slash ridge, which... Richard must have been Ishpa to suggest that Ella join him for a second date on Ishpatina. So deep in the forest of Tomogamy. <laughs> this, is, this, this is an apology. This is, this is an apology to all Ojibwe language speakers who are listening in. <laughs> oh, man. 
Yeah, you can tell by our reactions right now that that's that's just how things would seem when you're asking someone to go into the backwoods of tomogamy on a second date after you just got some coffee and everything's going all good. But, I really hope they're still together. I hope you better see at the end of the story that they got married and uh, had we'll, babies. We'll have to see about that. <laughs> okay. <the end>. Don't <laughs> ruin Stick the around Don't to find end. out more. But surprisingly, Ella did accept his proposal. She'd grown up with the rugged, hardworking childhood on the farm, but had never strayed too far from her southwestern Ontario farm and was ready to make the most of her life with her newfound freedom living in the big city. The farm life made her self-sufficient, strong, unafraid of doing the dirty work, highly disciplined and proficient in first aid to her experience on the farm, as well as her veterinary education, which... I don't know some some men are animals, so it makes sense. But fair nice, enough. nice. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> yeah, she was also a talented cook. She'd grown up that homesteading kind of lifestyle, so she'd grown up very proficient at cooking, and so she was highly motivated, ready for anything. So my kind of girl. But as their excitement grew, sitting in that corner booth, they decided the weekend following Canadian Thanksgiving the 17th and 19th of 1997 would be their best and last opportunity to make the trip before cold weather really started creeping its way in. And it would also, although it's more deciduous forest up there, it would offer some pretty cool views of all the changing leaves and all the birch and maple that are- You said it was in September? October. This is October. October. Okay. So they, they were starting the planning of this right around the end of September, early October, so. They didn't, they didn't have much time in that window. They didn't, either of them didn't have much winter experience. So they were just looking to get this in as quick as possible whenever they could get it off work if possible. So yeah, they decided the weekend after Thanksgiving would be their way to go. So they laid out some of the rough plans of their shared responsibilities. Richard would bring his small collection of essential gear. He had been a Cub Scout when he was younger. So he was, he was experienced, but he had been, he'd given up as an older age due to some sports and all that stuff and all the pressures of being that outdoorsy kid rather than the hardcore city kid. But mm -hmm. so he'd, he'd had that experience, but so yeah, he brought the tent, the cooking equipment and a map just in case he picked it up from a local hunting supply store Ella would also bring some of her personal gear from camping in the woods by her farm, but she was never an extended trip kind of family, that sort of thing. Right. But she also borrowed a few of the more extensive items from her mutual friend, Sam, that they met through. They'd grab groceries during that five and a half hour drive north while Ella would be in charge of the cooking. She was a pretty good cook. And Richard's idea of gourmet was ramen noodles and craft dinner. Mm. So anything so yeah. would satisfy him. Of yeah, course. Of pretty course. much anything. But then he was also very picky about oh, I don't like many vegetables or anything like that. So I know a few guys like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So she would also bring a steak dinner fresh from the family farm. She'd gone home, she would go home for Thanksgiving. So she would also pick up some steak once she was out there and just do some steak and potatoes, something really good over the fire. So 
they also plan to meet up once more. They couldn't text back and forth and go on Facebook Messenger to really plan this out. Right. So, so they decided to meet up and exchange, have their phone numbers already exchanged. So they would talk over that way. It's 97 at all. So, yeah, that's how it went. So from oh, there, nice. yeah. So a little information about Ishpatina Ridge now. When it comes to Ishpatina Ridge, normally you would access it from canoe routes. And a multi-day canoe trip, you go up through New Liskard or whatever, and then over to the Montreal River, and then you take that down through Smoothwater Lake en route to Scarecrow Lake at the base of Ishpatina Ridge. Right. But Richard had read it was doable by foot. Neither of them had really been very experienced in paddling. Neither of them owned a canoe, so they just figured with the hiking experience, it was probably best to do it that way. But yeah, he'd read in an article that it was doable by foot and then had already started some research on it. So you do that story north of Capriol, I think it's pronounced, just north of Sudbury. Sounds about right. Taking Moose Mountain Mine Road, the port lance Road, and then you take all the various logging roads to start northeast of Stewart Lake up there so that's one way of doing it you're more going south of the peak rather than starting up north and then paddling 30 kilometers so yeah the trail as the crow flies is only about 12 kilometers 10 to 12 but it's 15 kilometers when you're going from south of the peak making your way through all the atb trails and old logging trails and then you also do a little bushwhacking the whole Tamagami area, the the whole trails and portages aren't always the best upkept. You'll always come across fallen trees and such. So you got to be ready to not have your highways like you have on Algonquin. So yeah, that's the gist of what their plan was. They would do that. And then overall, the train would be challenging, but the distance of 30, 30 kilometers round trip rather than 30 there, 30 back on a canoe. They could easily do in 30 days by foot. You can easily do 10 kilometers a day. And then even they plan to do it in a day or even just do it up the second day and then hang around, walk around and see what the lake had to offer. It was too late in the season to swim anyway. So, but they wanted to give themselves some time. So the plan had been finalized. Rich had already bought a map from that hunting supply shop, had already been starting studying. Remember, this is before the internet had hit its stride, so everything had to be done the prehistoric way. Prehistoric. So, yeah, prehistoric. This hey, was many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you had to follow the birds as they flew towards the peak <laughs> and keep your eye on them. So so yeah, so they we flash forward to Friday, October 17th. Both had worked the Thanksgiving Monday in their various jobs. So they're able to get that following Friday off. They're hoping to get a good start at it. They plan to leave at 8 a.m. to beat the 400 highway traffic, which is always a pain in the ass, as anyone in the GTA knows. Mm -hmm. But then the problem was on that day, they met, they tried to go 8 a.m., but then Richard had some car troubles or he slept in. It's all up onto his word. We don't have <laughs> the mechanics say of what actually happened. Fair, so fair. he probably slept in. Yeah. So we picked <laughs> her up at 11 a.m. 
picked him up in his nice 1989 Honda Civic. This was higher rolling. So on their way, they stopped for some basic groceries. They figured they wouldn't need much. Richard did insist on packing light. He had read in all his backpacking books that you always want to have a nice light pack. One pound on the foot is 10 on the back. So he stuck to that like it was his gospel. So like I said, he was also a picky eater and he just liked a lot of instant food, not a lot of very healthy stuff, let's so say. So he's a man child. So yeah, he's a man child. <laughs> he's had it easy where he's grown up and the way he's been coddled his whole life i bet he doesn't do his own laundry probably not <laughs> i don't i didn't find a whole news report on that about i, I just want to i just want to remind everybody this is a human being we're, we're talking about this guy <laughs> sorry this is a real person that may actually like hear this podcast at some point we don't want to we don't want to just tear him a new one and have him like sue us or anything like that all in good fun richard sissel we're not trying to be slanderous we're just trying to make some jokes Richard Sissel is a good man, but at that point, he had not totally grown up yet. He was still only 22, so he was still learning his way in the world and still getting a hang of the backcountry life. So they picked up a beautiful craft dinner, bought a couple boxes of craft dinner, a pack of hot dogs, some trail mix, some bacon and eggs for a little breakfast treat, and then Ella's steak that she had brought from her family farm. And some of the normal usual snacks had some granola bars and such, but they wanted to pack light and do it easy. So they did that, stocked up, began their five and a half hour drive. So after some tough navigation by map and breath and breaks, Richard had a weak bladder. That's I don't want to like pile on Richard right now, but it was said that Richard did have a weak bladder. But they finally made it to the logging road at 5 p.m., a lot later than they initially hoped. They'd hoped to be there early afternoon, be ready to go and start the trail at least. But that would not happen. Sunset was at 6.30. They made it to the logging road there, and they still had the logging road to traverse to the start of the trail. <laughs> Richard had underestimated the conditions of the logging road, which was comprised sand, gravel, your typical riddled with potholes, and as bumpy as the trip was about to get. For, so, foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. 6 p.m. They finally got as far as the road would allow it at the Sturgeon River. This was the pretty much the trailhead there. Sunset was only 30 minutes away, so they decided to camp at the trailhead and set out early the next morning. The tent that Richard had brought was a rickety old A-frame from the 1960s, a classic but it had more patches than a punk kid's jacket. It was unstable <laughs> as the kids who wear them. So this was, oh, this was difficult. So Ella was already kind of getting a sight of what she was in for, but she was ready to go. She was a tough girl. So she was right away. The way Richard described his experience, though, you would have thought he was the second coming of Edmund Hillary, but was starting to seem more of a Walter Mitty so he was a dreamer <laughs> he wasn't a doer all the time so it was zero degrees older overnight colder than expected they didn't account for the difference from southern ontario weather but luckily they had their few clothes they had they had some sweaters and jackets and they're ready to go so then we flash forward to the next morning saturday october 18th 
they woke up at eight finally this time i'm not sure if richard had an issue getting out of bed or not but they got it up at eight they ate some instant oatmeal the ones with dino eggs that's oh that that stuff was good (laughs) it was so good i didn't even wait for the dinosaurs to emerge from the eggs i just ate that shit you just crunch it up sugary eggs eat it out of the packet (laughs) (laughs) just open the packet eat the dinosaur eggs yeah (laughs) so yeah that's the way to do it that was richard's favorite so he insisted on grabbing some dino egg oatmeal to go up with that (laughs) although we wouldn't recommend doing that that's that's very simple carbs it's not a lot of sufficient energy for a day you need fat you need fat protein yeah you need some complex carbohydrates fat and protein you need something that will give you a long burn in your tummy so as they packed up the tent and gathered the belongings ella realized she'd forgot her boots yeah this is oh no you're on a hiking trip she had she was supposed to get the boots from her friend but i guess she had left them there what was she wearing she was just wearing her normal tennis shoes Richard on the way up had worn some Converse on the way up. Richard was a couple sizes larger, but like the gentleman he possibly was, he offered up his boots, which ended up looking like clown shoes on her. So she had to see those slipping and sliding trying to go up a hill with those. Yeah. And they were just like combat boots and stuff. So he ended up wearing his Converse while she wore these big clunky clown shoe combat boots and it was it was a sight to see i didn't see any pictures but i'm just imagining yeah so the first part of the trip involves crossing the sturgeon (laughs) river by foot you hope the water levels are low enough if you can see some of the larger boulders sticking out you're good to go but if they're covered you don't want to do it but yeah they crossed that by foot which soaked their boots they didn't really expect too much of crossing rivers they had hoped there were bridges there used to be bridges in certain areas they have slowly removed them bit by bit in those backwoods from the old logging days so mm. they did that they followed the old atv and logging trails from there but besides the setbacks upon r- arrival everything was going great it was a beautiful sunny day great conditions great conversation they're making decent time. The wild trails trails have been easy to navigate at that point, but they're stopping to take in the scenery. They're, they're in no rush. They're not experienced hikers that are trying to get five kilometers an hour sort of thing. Right. They're heading for like a two or three kilometers an hour sort of base. Hmm. So they stop taking the scenery. They see a moose in the distance at one point. That was the first moose that either of them had ever, ever seen. They're right in the heart of the woods now, up in Tamogby. That's what I always feel as like the gateway to the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful place. I love it. I've been to Ishpatina before. It was great. I've never made it there. I've, I've been up in Tamogby when I was a teenager, but I've never made it to Ishpatina. Yeah, I've done the canoe route. It was, it's fun. It's a I nice. I got medevaced out of Tamagami. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you did, didn't you? Right. I did. <laughs> there you go. We we'll have to say it. We'll have to share that story for a later date. Oh my gosh, it's such an epic story. <laughs> we'll save that for definitely. Like we're gonna do like a our worst camping trip uh, stories, maybe. Okay. <laughs> but for this summer, we might save that one for this summer. Yeah, but. 
unsurprisingly, the dino eggs didn't fill them up enough, but luckily tomorrow's yeah, you would think that just a couple packets of dino egg, high sugar, fructose dino eggs would be enough to fill up two budding humans for a long day of hiking, but no. Strange that. But that's wisdom for you. That's learning as you go through the hiking community and the adventure community. Don't eat crappy processed foods when you're there. But luckily tomorrow, that's when they had planned for their bacon and egg feast. They wanted to save the good hearty stuff for later in their trip. That's a fair valid kind of concern. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (coughs) So then after that, they made it approximately seven kilometers by 11, 12 p.m. They're that far. They stopped for an early lunch along the second creek between Little Scarecrow and Hamlow. Okay. So then... They just packed a nice, easy lunch. I think they had made some sandwiches before they went up there, but they set back out at 1 p.m., crossing the shallow creek ahead of them, picking up the pace as elevation increases and the views are left behind in the forest. They're no longer near Hamlow Lake and all those nice, beautiful, serene areas. Now they're more into the bushwhacking portion. Right. After two kilometers, they finally arrive at the southern end of Vishpatina Ridge, and the start of the hiking trail. From there, it's about a five and a half kilometer bushwhack with about three kilometer section of trail. Like I said, though, it's not always the best maintained trail. The bushwhack was marked fairly well and with a few hours of chainsaw, it would have actually cleaned it up. And that's what I've done before is you just carry your bow saw when you, it's a little, a lot harder when you're portaging and carrying a canoe because you actually need that space to clear a 16 foot canoe. But yeah, it's, it's a lot, a lot of work. The trail itself was well-traveled, but it was littered with the fallen leaves from all the birch trees that align it. There was also a lot of fallen over trees and branches. From here, the trail is quite steep the whole way up, about two kilometers in another short but crazy cold creek marsh comes after that. Continue to take in the scenery, passing Woods Lake, then on to Scarecrow, day is looking up they're having a good time although the boots on the feet of ella are a little a little rough they're giving her some blisters everyone's feet is soaked from the multiple river crossings and creek crossings and yeah and they're they're sweaty they're getting the sweat on right now it's a nice cool october day but it's always still hard work that's the scary part yeah they're almost there at the base of the peak trail Normally it's accessible like a portage. You go up by your canoe, but at least this time they were just kind of bushwhacking along the shore of Scarecrow to make it up there. And from there, the trail is pretty steep the whole way up, about kilometers, two kilometers, another short thing. Oh, I accidentally read back there for a second. (laughs) So once they're at Scarecrow, they fill up their water bottles, arrive at the base around 4 p.m., Richard feeling the peak fever suggests they finish the remaining 3.7 kilometer hike to the fire tower lookout. This is what it was normally before back in the day. They used to have a fire tower with someone who would sit up in that fire tower with their binoculars and look out and make sure there were no fires in the area. The old fashioned way before they had satellite imagery and planes that routinely went through the area and they were able to know about these things rather than word of mouth 
so it's just a nice jaunt up the side of the mountain the, the whole Ishpatina Ridge it's thousands of year old mountains they used to be some of the highest mountains in the world of their time but now they're just weathered away they're rounded it's kind of like a Killarney feel as well just being a bit north of Killarney so yeah right. they fill up they fill up their water bottles get there gets peak fever 3.7 the sun wouldn't set for about two and a half three more hours but Richard brought extra batteries for his headlamp just in case they got caught up there but he he was feeling the, the fire within him he felt they could do it by the end of the night and get back down and set camp down below they decide they'll leave Ella's pack and the gear with tomorrow's meals at the bottom in a nice clear spot they scouted for the tent hidden by some brush just in case any greedy paddlers come by and hope to steal their stuff or any crazy beavers come by so Gotta hate those thieving paddlers. Yeah, they're always the worst. Just out there waiting. They're just hiding in the bushes in their ghillie suits, ready to pounce and take that old dilapidated patched up tent. So you can't trust them at any time. Can't trust them. But so they rested a little quick time. <laughs> you trust them? Okay. I'll pass it on to whoever that was back in the 90s. I am if one you, of them. If, if you're listening, you were there as like an eight-year-old in 97. You would have just been about to turn eight at that time. So Nikki Satira, nature woman, hanging out in the brush of tomogamy at the eight age years of two. old. In a ghillie suit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love so, it. So they hit the gear, they had a quick rest and water break, and they started their ascent around 4.30-ish. They brought Richard's pack along and some of their granola bars, a cooking pot with a box of KD and a pack of hot dogs just in case they wanted a quick dinner after reaching the top, which is peak romance in my opinion. That's Hell yeah. That is romantic. You're on the top of Ontario, you're having some dinner with your girl, and it's Oh, it doesn't get much better than that. Like, aside from the beautiful breakfast in bed with the dino eggs, that's that's a pretty mm -hmm. good shit right there. Mm -hmm. So, but I'd be swooning. I, I'm swooning. I'm swooning right now. <laughs> I'm swooning right now just because Ryan's like making it sound like he's doing that for me next. Well, <laughs> I will do this for everyone. If you want some dino eggs and some hot dogs and mac and cheese on the trail at the peak of Ontario, let's do it. We'll Let's get a whole this. trip going together. That'll be the next. That'll be the Canadian bushcraft anti-COVID party that we finally get. We'll retrace their steps and see if we could yes. fare better. But at this point, after the elevation, Ishpatina is a pretty long ridge, so it takes a while to get up there. And even at the base of Scarecrow Lake, like I said, you have 3.7 kilometers to go. But their legs are sore. Their feet are blistered after the 12 kilometers of hiking, give or take wading through those shallow rivers and creeks and especially in those big old clown boots that Ella was wearing and even Richard himself in his converse that he was wearing so it's even more steep and technical once you get past those foothills they had climbed through previously on that trek it was pretty much the basic runner-up ready to go training grounds for what they're about to do but I'm kind of pumping it up more than it is. It's a nice hilly jaunt, but yeah, it's nothing too crazy. But they take their time traversing up the trail covered in jagged rocks and boulders. 
but they can smell the victory mixed with their pungent body odor at this point. It's been sweaty. They've been out there for at least a night already. They slipped and stumbled their way up the trail. The peak must be near, they think. Every time they see the sky above, they hit another false peak. They surely thought they had reached the top by now, which is always a, a big issue when you're in hilly areas and mountain climbing. You see what you think is the peak, but then you get to that peak and then the peak is beyond that. You just can't see it due to your perspective. Mm. So they're becoming exhausted and out of breath at this point. Before this trip, the biggest hills they had climbed were routinely conquered by children and to with toboggans. So that's, that's the Toronto area for you and even flat south southwestern Ontario. But even then, as the bright sun began to disappear over the hills, Ella contemplated aloud whether they should turn back and try again tomorrow. But still, Rich had peak fever, and its bravado was also hitting its peak. So Richard assured the top was right around the corner, and descent will be even easier than getting up. It's, you just go down, it's nice and easy. You take gravity with you, you're good to go. And it wasn't until 6.15 that they finally reached the top and they reveled in their accomplishment. They take in the setting sun, but that enjoyment will sink as fast as the sun because they're uh -oh. within 15 to 30 minutes of the sun going down. Uh-oh. And it took them a couple hours just to get up. So it's it's going to be difficult to get down. They hadn't even set up their tent at the bottom at this point. So it's, it's looking risky and they still got to cook all their food and start a fire. So let's, let's give them good vibes and hope they make it back down. Richard grabbed his headlamp from his pack. He put it on hoping to lead the way as the sunset faded, but went click, 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 nothing happened. The headlamp is dead. Rich tried adjusting the batteries, but still nothing. He <laughs> checks his pack again. The backup batteries aren't there. He dumps everything out of his pack, but the batteries still aren't there. I don't mean to rag on Richard again, but like it seems like he's the common denominator here. Yeah, he's, he's kind of promised more than he can deliver on this trip so far. He's, he's still a newbie, but newbies shouldn't really be doing adventures like this especially with just two people on a second date mm -hmm. so i think we he, could say he he bit off more dinosaur eggs than he could chew yeah oh. Ooh, that's a good one i like that but yeah even richard i don't know he might he might become a dick long later on in this story so uh -oh. let's find out good segue <laughs> The slight panic begins to set in, but they already climbed up the trail. Surely it would be just as easy to retrace their steps, if not easier. They begin stumbling and sliding their way back down the side of the ridge, picking up the pace as they get to their site. But anyone that's experienced in climbing or hiking up tall hills and stuff, you know the, you're more likely to have an injury or an accident on the descent rather than the ascent mm -hmm. so you kind of let your guard down and then gravity just wants to take you with it so that's where the majority of accidents happen in these type of situations they're sweaty and exhausted but as the temperature quickly drops and they begin to feel the chill cutting through their t-shirts and hiking pants so they grab their sweaters that were luckily at the bottom of richard's pack they packed those before they left as well 
They scampered down the damp rocks, navigating through the dark. There's not much to see right now. There's a lot of trees that go over there, and it's even a cloudy night. So they can't see even much moonlight to get themselves through this. But as they go across those damp rocks, Ella feels the sole of her oversized boots slip out from underneath her. Uh-oh. She folds over like a rag doll and falls down a steep embankment, taking out Richard closely in front of her. Mm. So, yeah, you've got the snowball effect going on on this trip. As the dust settles with the two hikers laying in shock on the ground, battered and bruised, Ella feels a sharp pain down the length of her right arm. She can barely move it without writhing in pain. She mentions, I think it's broken. So she's in a state right now. She's broken her arm. It's dark. <laughs> it's on the side of a hill in the backwoods of Tomogamy, where help is at least a few hours away, if not more. So, and plus they don't have cell phones. I'm going to reiterate that. So they can't just be like, beep, boop. Yeah, search and rescue. Come, please come help me. No, it's there. Yeah. They're up to their own devices. They don't have any like ways to get help yeah nothing there's no gps there's no personal locator beacon Mm. they thought this would be an easy little trip and they could just prance around through the meadows and do their thing that's what happens when you're not prepared yeah exactly this is a case study of what not to do i remind everyone don't do exactly as they do on this trip so yeah Richard gets to his feet right away to attend to Ella, but stumbles as his knee buckles underneath him. Luckily, the pain is only mild. It doesn't seem like he has any breaks in his legs or anything, just possibly a sprained knee. Ella needs a sling to help with her broken arm as she's having a hard time with her shoulder too. It's either she's jammed it, dislocated it, or just kind of strained her shoulder as well with the arm as she crumpled down the side of the hill. Yeah, there's it's it's tough. She's in a bad Richard situation. Richard removed his sweat-stained bandana, so now she has to use Richard's sweaty bandana as a sling. And due mm. to her experience, she knows how to tie a sling. She directs him to go through it, grinning and bearing it all the way along. She's a tough girl still, but after some awkward silence and catching their breath of what just happened. They know they must still move on. They might not be able, it's not safe to make it the whole way back that night, but at least they can make it back to their camp where their food, their sleeping bags and their clothing Mm -hmm. are. So at this point, it's pitch black, cloud cover. They're disoriented and kind of in shock still from the fall that they have little idea of where they are, how far they're down the trail. They establish themselves on the steep rocky path and begin to descend into the trees. 30 minutes pass, they hit a fork in the trail. They don't remember this being here before, but they assume since it hadn't been on the way up that they had just passed it. And since it was going back down the opposite direction, they just were looking up trail and didn't see it. Mm -hmm. So they go left, which is the more trotted trail. It's a little more packed down, a little more prevalent. 15 more minutes pass as they cut through some trees but soon realize the trail has disappeared completely they no longer see a hiking trail anywhere 
and they've just been kind of walking through these trees trying to zigzag through the trees and see whatever trail was in front of them but they look around and see nothing in the dark forest it's even darker down there than it was up on the trail in the initial parts they figure they may have veered off a bit but if they keep heading downhill at this point they figure they'll eventually hit the edge of scarecrow lake and they can follow the shore from there it's a, it's a it's normally you can do a dead reckoning sometimes it helps but yeah if you know what's in there then go for it but you don't always want to change your direction be like oh i think it's back up this way or anything so sometimes it's the best option to go downhill the whole way but as they head down the lake never appears just more trees they can't even see anything off in the distance between cracks in the trees tensions finally begin to boil over they're both frustrated cold hungry in the dark this was not the type of tension they were hoping for on the trip wink wink nudge nudge <laughs> but wink what? wink it's... nudge nudge <laughs> i haven't heard that in years he has to say it because they can't see him <laughs> yeah. i have to be like eric idol wink wink nudge nudge say no, say more. no more say no more <laughs> say no more <clears throat> but at this point Richard blames Ella for not being more careful on the trail. And Ella blames Richard for pushing too hard and forgetting <laughs> the spare batteries of the headlamp. So their intentions are getting high. They're starting to pick at each other and their what was their playful conversation earlier in the day and their high spirits was kind of slowly fading. So yeah. He, he quips at her, well, if you hadn't forgot your hiking boots, we would have already been up and down and beating a stake around a fire by now. Ooh. Oh, these kids about to fight. They oh, both go no, <laughs> this doesn't bode well for the relationship. <laughs> You're hoping for marriage at this point. Or... I mean, at the beginning, I was. I mean, yeah. At the same time, I've I've hung out with enough married couples. This does sound like a married couple. Yeah, maybe they stay together. We'll see. We'll see. This. I'm just a hopeless romantic. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she she was still pissed at him about pushing too hard and kind of letting off the vibe that he thought he knew more than he actually did, and kind of put this them in this predicament in the first place. Mm-hmm. So. Everyone has some quarrels going on. She forgot her boots. He's not living up to his stand their their standards. So we'll see where this goes. But they they kind of both go silent for a bit to kind of reel in from what just happened. They sit by themselves and gather their thoughts. They're still starving from the long day with the small meals. So Richard gets out his pot, the craft dinner, and those lovely tube steaks. So they can finally at least have something while they're separated from their cozy campsite. They're hungry and they know they can't really stumble on much more without getting some calories in them. Ella is unable to cook without her energies as she normally did on this trip leading up to it. So Richard takes the lead, how hard it could be be anyway with just some craft dinner and hot dogs. But Ella- Is it hard? (laughs) Will it get hard? Will it get hard? We'll see. <laughs> Listen to next week's episode to find out more. But same then... dragonfly time, same dragonfly <laughs> channel. 
But then Ella was still ready. She was still writhing with fury. She's like, oh, great. Now I have to survive off your cooking for the rest of this trip. She knew he oh, was a ramen boy. So oh, she, she was throwing the heat on this trip. So Richard gathers the supplies to start a fire, eventually gets one going and uses the last of his water to boil the gourmet mac and cheese and hot dogs. The pot immediately began to boil over as he added the glorious mixture, but quickly it's, he's already lost all his water from his drinking bottle and now it's boiled over the sides. So you know how it goes when you don't add enough water to pasta. So yeah, it's, it's not the greatest. Not at all. Yeah. He still keeps a close eye on the pot, but Richard is unfamiliar with cooking over the fire. He doesn't understand hot spots and how quickly things can go out of control. And that's when he starts to smell something funny. The hot dogs and noodles have burned to the bottom of the pot <laughs> with all the water that was already there evaporated pretty much. There's a little bit left, so it's a bit of a slopping mess of burnt hot dogs, macaroni noodles, and yuck. So, and yuck. <laughs> yeah, that's all I'm going to say. He that's scrapes. the easiest, that's the politest way to describe what's going on. Yeah, but he was kind of embarrassed by this after things have already gone, so he just kind of hid what was going on from Ella and scraped away at the bottom and added oh, no. the, he added the cheese powder and stirred thoroughly. <laughs> Does that so, ever work out? Does that ever work? No. And I don't no. Even, they didn't have like milk or butter either. <laughs> so you, you can't save that. But then, yeah, he stirred it thoroughly. He's ready to go. And with his intents on kind of brightening up the moon, he goes, "My din your dinner is served, milady," as he tipped a imaginary <laughs> fedora. Oh, God. Trying to lighten the mood oh, ever more. Richard. Richard is a ladies' man, a gentleman, and a scholar at this point, I think we can find. <coughs> yeah, but obviously when you call someone a lady, that's always the, the best way. That's classy as fuck. So they take one bite, crunch, and spit it out. She quit. This is dinner. What is this? I have, ugh. But it's all they've got, so they choke down that burnt powdery casserole in disgust which proves to be even more difficult with only what's left of Ella's water at this point. It was a tough hike. They drank a lot. Yeah, it's, it's not going well. And these aren't the romantic dinners they were hoping to have. At this point, it's getting really late. It's around 11 p.m. So they decide they'll stay the night in the cover of the trees, hoping to find the right way back in the morning once they actually have some light to go by. Can I ask an inappropriate question? Go for it. About them? Go for it. Um, Have they banged? <laughs> Nikki. I don't How think know so this at this point. I think they might have left that part out of the story when retelling it to whoever was studying it in the first place. So I don't know. You know, we went our first date. We banged. We planned a trip. You know, the usual. So we'll, we'll have <laughs> to see if they bang after this. Then. Yeah, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> most likely not mm. so this night the temperature dropped down to about four degrees they feel it even more with their sweaty undergarments still on they had just been hiking and they don't have a change of clothes to go off of they begrudgingly agree to cuddle up for warmth but richard has to be little spoon as punishment 
<laughs> he's been a little man at this point so he's forced to be the little spoon and think about his mistakes oh my. to think about where he's gone Actually? wrong in these moments yeah in in my in my in my world i like being the little spoon as a large man it's nice having a jet pack on it's the, yeah like i was about to say the jet pack it's, it's always it's, it, it's it works for james bond it works for me <laughs> Yeah, but he didn't see it this way. They both go mainly sleepless throughout the night, laying on that cold florist floor. Uh, forest floor, not florist floor. <laughs> <laughs> the four florists. Of the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> I bet half of our audience are like, what is going on right now? <laughs> I, I shouldn't laugh, though, because they're laying on the cold forest floor in pain from their accident mm-hmm. that just happened. He's got a sprained knee. She's got her shoulder and arm all messed up. So I'm going to I'm going to take it easy on them. Got it. Uh, they go no sleep throughout the night. They awaken the next morning with a light mist through the trees. They gather their minimal belongings and start to hike with the thought of finding camp, proper food, heading home to push them on. That was their light at the end of the tunnel that they were looking for. Mm-hmm. So they hike along. They follow a small creek they hope will lead to water. Follow the water to more water. After another 30 minutes of walking down, still no lake. They begin to worry at this point. They still, they're still in denial that they're lost or maybe going the wrong direction. Maybe they went further north of Scarecrow Lake than they suppo- were supposed to and needed to navigate with the little sun they had, but they, they're figuring they're still on the right way. The path begins to flatten off. They're surely at the bottom of the ridge by now, but still no sign of the lake, even Miha Lake which was beginning to feel like they're in hell now. So they were, they were not enjoying themselves anymore. Mm-hmm. Everything started to go wrong and more wrong. Little did they know in the darkness of the past evening, they had took the wrong trail, an old game trail heading down the opposite side of the ridge. Oh no. So they were just heading into the expanse of the forest at this point. With little to eat, they began picking whatever berries they can find. With little knowledge of foraging, they're hoping just to find some blueberry bushes and such, which you can find sometimes in that area. But they were hoping they didn't choose the wrong berries at this point. They were just taking it, eating whatever they could. After another hour, they began to accept that they were lost. They tried to regain their orientation, but Richard didn't bring a compass, so he messed up on that. Of course. Thanks, Richard. Oh, it's all laid out. I don't need a compass. I'm just gonna go by landmarks. Now, bring a compass. I really don't. Why would I need a compass? Why would I need a compass? I'm I'm climbing the tallest peak in Ontario. I really don't like Richard. (laughs) (laughs) You don't need a map. You don't need a compass to find a peak. It's right there. It's the tallest thing. Yeah, (laughs) Richard was trying to be a little too cool, and ended up screwing around. He thought he was a badass. Like I said, he thought he was. Sir Edmund Hillary, but he was more like Walter Mitty. He was just the dreamer. He wasn't the guy who put things into action yet. And this was like his first real hiking trip. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he went a little too far. He bit off more than he can chew. We've said that a billion times, but yeah, it's true. But from Ella's perspective on this first date, she got the impression Richard had the skills of a seasoned veteran but was slowly starting to realize he was a Lord of the Flies. That was, 
He was just mm -hmm. a kid in the forest, pretty much. A babe in the woods. Yeah. And so for the next day, they hiked and hiked, eating whatever blueberries they could find, drinking from streams and filling their water bottles along the way. They spent another night covering themselves with whatever debris they could find to stay warm. So they were, they were, <laughs> they're roughing it now. They're desperate now. They're in the thick of it and do not know what to do. They're lost, hungry, and they could see no end to this second date from hell. The next morning, hunger pains grew deeper. They had survived on mostly processed food, leaving their best meal for last at the base of Ishpatina. So the food was out there somewhere. They just didn't know where it was. They didn't know how long they'd be out there and if anyone would be able to find them. Remember, this is before cell phones. They didn't have anywhere to contact anyone. So their stomachs crumbled and they were losing all energy after no food and consecutive sleepless nights. The blueberry bushes ran out as they got deeper into the forest, locked in the dense brush of the surrounding deciduous forest. No sunlight could reach through those branches. Therefore, the blueberries didn't grow at the bases of those trees, which I think we already know from teaching this kind of stuff is once you're lost, you kind of stay in place. But it was mm -hmm. also kind of magnified from the fact they didn't know if anyone would come to find them or not. Where Did they, they tell were, anyone especially. where they were going? I think they had just like mentioned it offhand. Probably to told Sam. People. So yeah, Sam knew where they were going, but that was pretty much it. There wasn't too much to go off of. They're like, I'm going to Mogami, going to do the highest point in Ontario. So, okay, bye. So nobody had, they didn't leave a float plan. They didn't say exactly where they're going. And then nobody would know that they went down the wrong side of the hill. So at that point they needed just to either find the way to go back up that hill but since they had already got themselves so deep into the thick of it there was a, a difficult chance of doing that and they just became more lost and lost mm -hmm. a few more days passed and despair was becoming intolerable they were drinking but they weren't eating really at all while searching for any source of food richard suddenly came across a big old pile of bear scat filled with berries no 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 <laughs> richard he, don't do it don't do it for, richard from one of the survival books he had read he had recalled the term second harvest no 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 about how much of an animal's previous meal would pass no. through the digestive <laughs> system undigested and how it was still possible to gain nutrients from eating these again so the berries, whatever you could find in there, any organic matter that is in that doo-doo. So he mentioned it to Ella and she's like, hell no, I'd rather die here right now. And she even like in her interviews afterwards, she recalled that part defiantly that she, no, no way, not doing that. But at this point, it was their only option they were already two little skinny kids lost out in the forest for days without fat reserves needed for energy. So they were slowly starving to death. Richard reluctantly took the lead and started picking from the pile of mother nature's trail mix, placing them in a pile. But obviously you can't get it. They were like little Hershey kisses. Is that it he was safe to out. eat bear poo? 
I have no idea. Are you actually barfing, Kayla? I'm dry heaving. I'm trying to kick it in. <laughs> oh, my God. He, he plopped him in his mouth one by oh. one. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm muting my microphone so nobody hears me throw up. He's like... <laughs> These berries literally taste like shit. He grumbled and choked them down. They didn't have they didn't have water to do this at this point. I shouldn't be laughing at these people's fight for survival, but it's just you're amazing. Laughing at my situation is what you're laughing at. <laughs> oh god! But at this point, after even all the shit they went through, literally, you know a good night's kiss is off the table when there's scat also on that table. So you knew it wasn't gonna happen at the end. Sorry, Nikki. This this goodnight no, kiss is not yeah. happening after this. But Ellen initially resisted, but working closely with animals, she knew this to be true and figured, well, I've already tried his cooking, so how much worse could this be? So she reluctantly took a bit for herself. So she is joined the poo party. Suddenly they could hear rumbling coming from off in the distance. Their hair had stood on end. Was this the bear back? And was this bear disturbed from them eating its leftovers? Did you just say bear back? <laughs> Not... As the bear returned. Was that had the bear returned? <laughs> I want to apologize to any family that's paying listening to this show with their kids. Oh, they uh, should have stopped listening know. a they long time ago. Know. Oh God, oh, Nikki, God, agent of chaos that you are. Yeah, <laughs> they had gobbled down whatever was left from that bear pie. Are we still talking about the bear poop? They were entitled like Goldilocks. <laughs> they just took it and ran with it. But this rumbling grew closer and closer. They hid behind a tree, fearing the worst that this bear was roaring off in the distance. But Ella suddenly perked up. Is that an ATV? She suddenly began to recognize the rumble of the engine like the one she grew up riding back at the farm. They stumbled towards the sound and within 200 meters hit the edge of an ATV trail. And within five minutes coming toward them on that trail was a man with an orange vest and hat and gun strapped across the front of an ATV. It was hunting season. It was October. So luckily there was a hunter nearby but they, the whole time they were only 200 meters from the trail when they ate that bear pie, bear so. pie. you don't have to call it pie right <laughs> if you call it a cow pie i'm gonna call it a bear pie too it's yeah, really it like makes it sound like food it's it's more like a bear because it's a pile not laid out flat it's more like a bear biscuit or like a bear loaf let's call it a bear loaf but yeah, the hunter stood there with the look of disbelief across his face while the two hikers stood there with fresh scat still drying on the corners of their agape mouths. They were in shock that they were so close to help and did what they did. They ha still had doo-doo on their face. It was it was horrible. <laughs> but did you just say duty? But Ella, at, in that moment right there, stuck her finger down her throat in attempt to purge the forbidden porridge. They had just ate. <laughs> I 
Yeah. The good old forbidden porridge. Goldilocks style. Oh god, my face hurts. <laughs> oh my god. And then what happened? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh god. Caleb, the way you said that. <laughs> I'm just... fine. I'm fine. <laughs> This, this was a traumatizing event for them. We shouldn't laugh too hard at it. They had to go through a lot in this situation. They went through a lot of shit. Yeah, they went through a lot of shit, literally. They went through a lot of nature's porridge. <laughs> nature's forbidden porridge. God. So then what happened? Now with berries. But... They didn't have dinosaur eggs in it. <laughs> Luckily, the, the bear had a better diet. He was fully organic. He only ate the best fish. And the best berries. So, oh, fish berries. It's a beautiful cereal name. But so, yeah, the guy just looked at them. He was just mortified seeing these two kids stumble out onto a path with their faces covered in shit. So, he's like, Do you need help? Do you need a handkerchief or something? So, he gave them his bandana that he had. They wiped off whatever remnants were left on. They didn't lick up whatever was left and then he offered them a ride back to where they came from because at this point they still they couldn't bring an ambulance out here onto these atv trails and he also didn't have a cell phone due to the day and age so they just hopped on the back of his atv and he was able to drive them back to where they started so once they got there they were able to both hop into richard's car without having their packs still back there. They weren't about to walk back to the base of Ishpatina. That was way too much. They were already traumatized. Their bellies were full, but they were traumatized. So they drove back to Capriol and that's where they were finally able to get some medical attention. And so we can just say it was an awkward thing after that. And then also after they had been seen at the medical center, they had to drive back the five and a half hours of Toronto to drop Ella off at her place. Very wounded in physical sense and wounded mentally as well. And it was a date they would never forget. <laughs> you don't say. And it turned them off from chocolate pudding for the rest of their lives. They were never like you ask them to this day they will never eat chocolate pudding again nothing like that oh no blueberry chocolate bars nothing no berries and chocolate whatsoever you can't mix anymore no chocolate covered strawberries nothing so so yeah that's they didn't get married from what i know after that but that's pretty I mean, much of course not where their story ended that's that's not the, the second date to remember, especially with the meals that were served up on that trip. And it just highlights the importance of having good food with you at all times, good nourishing food. So you do not have to resort to what they did. So yeah, that's the story. And what happened to them? What happened to them? They died. I'm assuming they ended up in an insane asylum or something like that, padded room. Only going with yogurt, no chocolate pudding. That that was their daily meal, so they didn't choke on it. So 
So that's all I know from there. Like I said, there was only a few stories on that that I could research from. And they had some pretty good testimonials of what went down. But from there on, I think Richard, he became, he was still went with his business, but he was a little turned off from hiking for a while after that. He was, both of them were kind of hike, turned off from hiking and adventure after that experience. They were rightfully so traumatized from the forbidden porridge. So, so yeah, that's, uh, she's a successful veterinarian, I think. Good, good for her. Does she have to handle a lot of animal shit now or? Luckily not. She doesn't have to do a lot of that unless it's already in the intestines when there, but normally you get a, you do some fasting before any medical work or surgery. So but she sees it on occasion, but every time it reminds her of that day, but she fights through it. She's a champ. She's, she's a hardworking woman. I heard Richard. I heard Richard wrote a book about all this. Really? What the? I just yeah. did so much I, research. On I this found it. I was just Googling it. My, I looked up his name and it came up and it, what, it was a, what's it called? Uh, when a bear shits in the woods. Okay. Richard. <coughs> Richard yes, that's exactly his name. The guy from the story. Wrote yeah. The book. He wrote a oh. book. Called when, it was his memoir of the entire scenario. It was not a bestseller at all. It was a pretty shitty reading actually. Yeah. And Richard's a dick anyway. So Dick Sissel is not the best. Yeah, he doesn't know his shit. Except he does know his shit. So this guy knows his shit. That's the tagline on he the book. He literally knows his shit. Yeah. Yeah. But second harvest will always have a special meaning to him. But yeah, that's that's as much as I know. I wish I knew more. I might have to find this book and read it sometime. <sighs> that's yeah. a, you know what? That sounded really familiar and it sounded a lot like my tamagami story you ate the forbidden porridge? no i did not eat forbidden porridge but everything else really good lord <laughs> well ryan thank you for this enlightening and heartwarming story oh anytime <laughs> yeah those were two great stories oh my god this was amazing Dude, is this is this where we <laughs> Is this where we end yeah. the episode? Okay. We can we can end the episode here. <laughs> okay. Well, um, we want to thank our patrons, uh, people like Martin Heidinger, uh, Flint Chandler, Davis. Uh, well, the people that helped us write this episode because this was an April Fool's for everybody. <laughs> these were these were fake stories that Ryan and I had to write, and we uh, requested. We've tried to treat this kind of like a whose line is it anyway, where we were going to write the premise, and then our supporters at Patreon. We're actually helping us get like themes written in there. Things like uh, a psychotic deer with a personal vendetta stalking you through the forest. Uh, he was forced to eat. Uh, they were forced to eat the, his cooking to survive. All those kind of lines that Ryan and I have kind of peppered through the stories came from our supporters over at Patreon, like Martin Heidinger, Flint Chandler, as well as Davis. Uh, I want to thank everybody that participated in the April Fool's project with us. Thank you so much for this. <laughs> Ryan, that was way too much detail about bear poop being consumed. I had to lead everyone up with a really detailed, normal story that would oh be believable. God. I've been to Columbia, I'm in a tomogamy before. I've done that hike that area. I actually researched how you would hike it from 
the southern end and which roads you'd need to take and which trails you take, how far it is, which creeks would you would go by and which oh everything what i, I love what i loved most was you actually figured out the dates of the week before thanksgiving or the week before after. yeah yeah, you got yeah. Like, what what is the weekend before thanksgiving in 1997 you got the actual dates for that i looked that up i looked up the weather for that time so <laughs> i knew it was around zero degrees the first day and it was five, oh my god it was five degrees in toronto at that time so I did my research because I wanted it to not stand out as being just, yeah, they went there, they went hiking, and then they went up the ridge, and they then they came the back poop. down, and then they ate the poop. Ha ha. Forbidden. So I wanted to give it some detail. I was just making my numbers up. I, I There is no Shagabaga, Ontario. I made that word up uh there there is no Wahlberg, ontario there there is there is nobody named ollie weatherman who then says it's gonna rain that guy does not exist except for family guy <laughs> just all yeah, that kind I of stuff i just named my guy after a bird and the girl after ella campaign so nice after, i didn't even realize after birds and plants what was her last name campaign ella <laughs> campaign <laughs> you're an herbalist and you didn't catch that one i didn't catch that one i just was focused <laughs> on richard, richard sissel that's why i thought you were laughing at the names no i was laughing at richard sissel because okay. dick sissel yeah <laughs> oh and then henry and winchester two different gun companies like well it's a hunting story so i just threw henry winchester together <laughs> i tried to leave some easter eggs throughout that story some the problem some with the easter eggs, are eggs. Bear shit. yeah you mean forbidden porridge the forbidden porridge <laughs> and just for everybody who's listening to understand i apologize for dry heaving i did not expect it to go to fecal philia or fecal food <laughs> i don't know what was going on there i was getting very concerned where it was going well, and I... one of the suggestions were that they found refuge in the bottom of a latrine but that was sarah's bad. that was sarah's idea yeah yeah there was no latrine in the area that these two people were so i was gonna have a hard time shoehorning that into the story so i figured why not we've already talked about how bad the food is how could this food get worse so it goes from just your average story building up to just ridiculous that was like i loved how you're like well i'm not gonna be able to keep up with that story and then you tell that that was the best prank story i've ever heard in my life <laughs> and that's not even a joke that was like hands off to you sir that was you beat me on that one I thought me talking about a guy tripping balls on mushrooms while trying to fight an imaginary deer was funny. You beat me by a mile. I, don't know, I, I thought it was going to be pretty hard to beat when I finally heard about you making armor out of clothing and <laughs> doing all that shit. So. I was I was like imagining Walter White in a in a deer fight scenario, pantsless, his pants around his arm, trying to defend himself from the deer. That was insane. That was absolutely insane. I loved it. Uh, again, I want to thank all of our patrons, Sarah. Flint, Davis, Martin, and everybody else that participated in this project. And if you want to participate in projects like this and be in on the joke with us, uh, jump on over to Patreon and you can support us over there for as little as a dollar a month. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. I want to thank Ryan and, of course, Nikki for joining in with me on this to make this quite a special April Fool's for everybody. <laughs> Hope you all enjoyed the laugh. Take care. Have fun. Be safe.